you please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Read verses 1 through 4 today. As we look at the text today, I want you to think about your own desires in life with me. How many here, together with me, have ever at some point in your life desired to be rich? You don't have to raise your hands, but just think about raising your hands. How many have ever desired to be rich? There are a lot of Christians who plan to serve God, but they want to be rich first. And then once they are so rich that they do not need to worry about money, then they've got a plan to serve God. I've had such plans. Who here, at some point of your life, have wanted people to respect you? borderlining on, or let's just admit it, you've wanted people to admire you. To have a following, to have a reputation, to have fame, to have people when they saw you recognize you and fawn all over you about how famous you are. What do you suppose would happen in the local church when our desires to be rich and famous get blended with church ministry? Clamor for money, clamor for respect, clamor for regard. Last week, we had a corrective on what it means to be a good leader. The corrective was that a good leader is not someone who is a brutish bully uh, in order to get their way or to get things moving. A good leader is characterized by the meekness of wisdom we saw last week. James spoke of some unsettling characteristics of ungodly leadership, things like bitter envy and selfish ambition. And then he spoke of good qualities of leaders. Look at chapter 3, verse 17 again. Uh, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Today he's going to continue this conversation, but there's going to be a shift in the conversation. It involves concerns along the same lines that we saw last week, but James is opening a conversation in chapter 4 that involves problems within the church in how the members relate to one another. Look at just the first part of verse number 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, and then just let your eye drop down to verse number 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And all of this seems to have arisen out of a desire to be regarded as leaders, going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And the contentions in the local church of wannabe leaders arise out of some very hollow desires, some very hollow feelings inside the human soul where there are desires that are just frustrated, desires that are unfulfilled, and desires that are not godly desires. So today's text, I think, is going to take us, invite us to look inside at the desires of our hearts, what's really there. Uh, Let's look at verse number 1 here of chapter 4. We read verses 1 through 4. And we're really going to leave James off in the middle of his conversation today, but for time's sake, I think we have to. Verse number 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would give us a window into our soul, a window into our desires, our passions. And Father, I pray that you would align our desires with your desires. I pray, Lord, that you would align our prayer requests with your purposes. Uh, Father, might our prayers be for something that involves a greater end than our comfort, our temporal satisfaction. And God, I pray that you would teach us how to be good and godly leaders in your local church. Bless us as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, have our outlines this morning, and if you don't normally take out your outlines, I'm going to ask you to take it out of the bulletin today either way, because at the end I've got a bit of an exercise I'd like for you to be involved in. Um, James invites introspection over the inner conflict of his readers in verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The inner conflict would seem not to be conflict just within each individual, although that's where it springs from, but conflicts within the church as a whole. I just read verses 1 and verses 11, where where there are uh, quarrels, there are fights among you uh, in the church, and verse number 11, speaking evil against one another. So within the church, you have the passions of multiple people creating strife. These are passions that ought to be brought under control of the Holy Spirit, but they are instead cultivated within the church body. We see this lived out in certain church movements even, I believe. I believe the whole health and wealth movement is one such movement where the craving for the mass acquisition of wealth turns into a spiritualized sign of God's blessing. So the more wealth you gather, the more blessing of God you are obviously enjoying. And it becomes a passion that just builds on itself. And so you can scarcely turn on the TV on a Sunday morning and not find some shill out there saying that God needs your money. And when you send your money, God will bless you. You also see this in other ways within local churches, uh, within this cult of personality, where a pastor ought to value humility and and, and being anonymous as he promotes Christ. But instead, what you will find is men who crave fame and who are rewarded for obtaining fame. And, And this happens on a national, global scale where you have people clamoring for money and clamoring for fame. And I can only imagine the politics behind the scenes that you would encounter in such a ministry. But it can happen at any scale, in any location, including Pine Island, Minnesota, southeast Minnesota. It could be 
two pianists vying for time on the piano on the Sunday morning service. It could be two Sunday school teachers vying for some position. It could be two deacons vying for their, their position to win sway. And if one is more brutish than the other and wins his way, do we call that good leadership? Someone who knows how to move people. Someone who knows how to get his way. Is, it, is he right because he won? Is he right because his idea won? At any scale, at any location, there needs to be a holy and fearful reverence on God's servants as we serve. Back to chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will receive the greater judgment. I would say this would apply to all forms of leadership in the local church. We should not clamor for leadership. We should not clamor to win sway with ideas of our own because we will be judged with greater strictness. Now, you might remember when I dealt with chapter 3, verse number 1, and God said teachers, pastors included in that, teachers would receive the greater judgment. Uh, you remember how I said, you know, teachers are asked to get up and use their tongue. And, and, and James goes on to speak about sons of the tongue, how a small tongue can move a great body. And I think he has in mind the local church. A tongue up here in the pulpit uttering wrongful things can lead a church in a wrong direction. And that's why we receive the greater judgment. Of course, my argument as a pastor is, wait a minute, God. I have to get up and speak for two hours a week. There's Sunday morning, there's Sunday night, there's Wednesday night. I'm going to use a lot of words, so you ought to cut me some slack, right? There's just a lot of opportunity. I mean, uh, just, I, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, so I should have a lot of slack. And God sees that as just the opposite. He said, no, 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 you will be judged with greater strictness. And the living object lessons for that are Aaron's son, the high priest Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu in Leviticus 10. And, and in Leviticus 10, they were serving as the first priests in the tabernacle. There might have been some alcohol involved because later on in chapter 10, there's a prohibition against having wine anywhere near the ministry at that point. So there might have been some drunkenness, some carelessness, where they got the fire, it was unauthorized fire, they got the fire for uh, worship out of the wrong place, or it was a wrong source. And they made a mistake, and God strikes them dead. And Aaron is looking upon this situation, these are his two sons, and, and, uh, and Moses comes to Aaron and says, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before the people, before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so when you seek to teach, when you seek to lead, you are identifying with God. You are coming close to the things of God. You are handling the Word of God. And God will be glorified. He will be sanctified. And you will be careful what you say about and from His Word. And I would say this applies to Christians in general, especially to Cornerstone Baptist Christians. Uh, if you're feeling conflict within the church, uh, not just a difference of opinion. A difference of opinion is to be expected. Uh, we, have a, we have a decision we're making today. Uh, we expect differences of opinion. I'm talking about not bringing a difference of opinion. I'm talking about bringing the heat. <laughs> I'm talking about angry contention. James invites us to do some introspection. Where is your heart? Why are you being triggered? 
You are the church of God. In that sense, you have drawn close to God to glorify God. And I would say especially here in southeast Minnesota because you're attending Cornerstone Baptist Church. If people identify you as a Baptist, they don't know exactly what to think about you. But, especially in Minnesota, but they kind of have this idea. They kind of have this idea. You, you guys take this pretty seriously. That, that, that just, you know, those people take the Bible pretty seriously. Uh, so you have identified with the name of Jesus Christ. You have drawn close to him, and God will be sanctified in your life. Uh, so, so we are invited here to do some introspection and, um, uh, about what, what, why we're being uh, uh, triggered in conflict. And James links conflict to the lack of contentment available through a God-focused prayer life. Look at verse number 2. For contentment and focusing on God in your prayer life. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the first thing I want you to notice is the malcontent in verse number 2. Listen to the descriptions here. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We have these descriptions. Desire, covet, do not have, cannot obtain. Frustrated desires. Wreaking havoc in your life. Now notice the the grammatical construction here. the, The parallelism. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The... uh, most common meaning of the word here, murder, is literal murder. And that has created some consternation in my own understanding of the passage. And at first I thought this was just a fringe idea. And it, it, it's come more and more to be a legitimate possibility that James is dealing with Jewish believers and there was a zealot movement, uh, a patriotic zealot movement in Judaism. Uh, and there's good arguments for this interpretation. I mean, you see it in the United States of America when people accuse our government of not following the Constitution, and they'll say, therefore, it's not a legitimate government because they're not following the Constitution. They no longer have authority. You'll see things like that. In the Zealot movement, you had the Word of God. You had the Torah. Israel is God's nation. It's a theocracy. And here you have these idolatrous Romans ruling in the land of God, among the people of God. And so, can you understand how somebody would say, hey, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a David and take on Goliath. Uh, Dare to be a Gideon and stand against this injustice where interlopers are in the throne in God's land. Do you see how they would have this patriotic zeal and they would have somewhat of a biblical basis for understanding that if God were not judging Israel for what we call a church age? So, grammatically, the term, in combination with the term uh, murder and battles, always, uh, always refers to literal wars and literal, almost always refers to literal wars and literal battles. So, this zealot movement, this zealot impulse, the timing is right in history for this interpretation. Also, if you look at chapter 5, verse number 5, James says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. This is to the rich. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
So again, murder is mentioned there. Is that a metaphor? Is that hyperbole? Or is it literal? There's good reasons to accept it as literal. There's also good reasons to reject this view. For one, the fightings and the wars taking place are among you. It doesn't say the murders are among you, but it says the fightings and wars are among you. Uh, If there were literally murder going on within the church, you would think James would park on this outrage for a lot longer than he does. That that it would be so out out of touch with God that he would just park and rail on murder going on within the church. Um, Even if it's contention and quarreling within the church and then somebody going out as a zealot and committing murder of some Roman uh, uh, or or, or some some other uh, uh, unjust faction in society. So uh, one would wonder about that. The the other thing, grammatically, um, you know, he, he says, you desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I would tend to reverse those, you know, because this would be like the climactic point. There's actual murder going on in the church or by the church. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, another reason, just the grad, this seems a little bit anticlimactic here. The last reason that we would reject the view that it's literal murder is that James had a human brother, Jesus, who said this. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So as we uh, look at Jesus, when, when James thus says you kill and you murder, he could be saying that you are murderously hateful in your heart toward your brother. You have a bitterness towards someone in the church. A bitterness. And so he could be speaking in the manner of Jesus there. I cannot be definitive in choosing between the two. I am just, usually by this time in my study of God's word, I'm like, well, at least I'm more leaning one way or the other. I really don't have a lean yet on this. So let's apply it both ways, because I I don't think either application, whether you take it as literal murder or you take it as bitter hatred of your brother, I don't think either application will send you in a wrong direction. Let's take it that it is literal murder, literal patriotic murder. Well, my mind would go to the fringe element of American society today who disagree with our government and disagree to the point that they would say the government has strayed from the Constitution and the purpose of the Second Amendment in possessing weapons is not deer hunting, it is replacing your government. And then they will go on to suppose and suggest, well, perhaps it has come time for us to rebel against our government. And I've heard this. In media, I've heard this positive. Just stop and think. Would the church have anything to contribute toward that kind of a movement in this environment? Understand that if you were to execute the entire leadership, let's just take Minnesota locally, of Minnesota, execute our governor, execute every politician you disagree with, and now rebuild our state, Is it going to involve any kind of democracy? Because if it does, guess what kind of a government is going to get elected next year? Uh, You know, unless you kill millions of Minnesotans, 
you're going to have exactly the same government if you're going to allow democracy in the new government that you concoct. Likewise, on the national level. And if you do pick up arms against the United States government, do you have any control over how you are going to put that back together again after the rebellion? Do you really think that you in Pine Island, Minnesota, are going to play any significant part in that? You will be a nobody when that kind of a rebellion is over. And how do you not know if you go to some militia kind of meeting that you are not being played by some forces who have a higher agenda than you would ever understand? If you truly are entertaining any thoughts of overthrowing our government today, I would say two things. Number one, read Romans 13. Number two, I would encourage you to examine your heart based on today's text for prideful lust, for some unfulfilled, deep-seated desire that has you thinking such thoughts as a Christian. I would advise you to rejoice in the government you have today in the United States of America. It is fully open to your participation. There is nothing legally prohibiting you from running for office rather than picking up arms against your government. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You have polls, you have voting, you can be election judges, you have school councils, town councils, you have all kinds of hard work that you could do in your government. It is all open to you today. Take up arms against your government, you'll wind up dead. Participate in your government, you might wind up senator. I would commend the latter course of action to you. The second possible interpretation of murder is that people within the church can become so aggressively ambitious for their own agenda, their own reputation, or their own way of seeing the world that they get enraged when things don't go the way that they think they ought to go, which is usually toward them, which usually involves some kind of preeminence, some kind of standing among men, or wealth through ministry. People get angry over doctrinal positions. People get angry over pragmatic positions. Doctrinally, you could be upset that other people in the church don't agree with your position on Arminianism or Calvinism. <laughs> Deep weighty topics that have plagued theologians for centuries, and you're upset that somebody disagrees with you on this. That's wrong. Pragmatically, you are maybe upset that people don't agree with your thoughts on a church building edition at 1215 today. Thankfully, I haven't noticed anybody on on, on, on this issue having any kind of anger at all. So I am not impugning anyone. Um, I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I love our church. I just, I, I love the way we make decisions. Uh, the, you know, the asking for not just a majority, not just a super majority, but something that looks like unity when we look at a project like this. Because uh, we don't have to do anything 
And, and we don't want to do anything if, if there's a significant amount of consternation over that. So I, I love our church for the way we do that. Um, and, and so again today, uh, if you have uh, ideas that differ from what's being said, bring the ideas, but don't bring the heat. Don't bring the heat. We just don't want to do business based on heat. There's a lot of people who would be really good at heat in this room. And uh, the Holy Spirit has that under control, and we want to continue and enjoy that. The answer to all of these frustrated desires, I believe James is saying, is found in a God-centered prayer life. So let's go to point number three. Prayer must have a higher objective than your unfulfilled desires. Desires that may be very well uh, be the wrong desires. Desires that may very well be the wrong desires. In verse 2 and 3 again, James said, You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A godly prayer has higher desires than worldly desires. A godly prayer desires the things of God. Now, when I, whether I'm praying for you or whether I'm praying for me, I am always going to pray for your health and your wealth, your physical well-being, your strength, and your financial well-being, your enjoyment, your ability to enjoy this life financially. But as I pray for those things, there is a willingness to accept what God's hand has for you and what God's hand has for me. Most recently, I've lived this out twelfth with twice. I've lived this out twice with health problems. Uh, one of those was COVID nineteen Delta variety. Uh, I was living at the time with twelve other people in my house. They all twelve of them had COVID nineteen Delta, and uh, I lived with them for five days. I was tempted to move out, just go live in a tent in my out in my yard, right? But I lived with them for five days, and these were obviously unclean people because I eventually got infected and uh, very careless in their hygiene. And uh, so, but here was what was different. All 12 of them had a way of entering into COVID-19 that differed from mine. I first felt it in my lung. And this is the time that people were going on those lung devices and dying at a rate of over 50%. And so I'm like, okay, here I go. I, before the test even gets done, I know what I got. And it started in the lung. And so as I'm praying for health through this, I'm also accepting that this could be it. And God, if it is, please uh, help me to bear this with strength and help me to go quickly. <laughs> I'm a, I, am, I am a wimp when it comes to pain, all right? I just, you know, I don't mind going, but it's the process of going that really has... Has me scared and creeped out, okay? Um, and, and so there's, the, 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 and honestly, that, that, is, that was my prayer. Uh, you're recognizing God's will might not be for me to be healthy, uh, to come out of this as a healthy man. In January, I had the shingles, and you don't typically die from shingles, but I hear that you're going to wish that you were dead in shingles. And so on day number eight, I had just a glorious rash going, and finally I'm on the phone with Dr. Eric, and he's like, oh, does it start at the backbone and go, oh, that's following a nerve, that's shingles, and, you know, and he's all excitedly geeking out on science. <laughs> so good at science, he loves science. And, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm getting sick uh, because shingles is an old man disease. 
It's on my mind, right? And I'm also getting sick because I've heard the stories. And I'm like, so I'm laying there as I hang up the phone and I'm praying to God. And there's no praying, God, I pray that I don't have shingles because it was clear I did. And it's like, God, I pray that you'd help me to get through this. Give me the strength. And I'm thinking all about the pain, right? And, uh, but God, I know you have purpose in this and your purpose is good. And so um, I'm always going to pray for health. But the shingles was good for me. It was a good trial. The COVID was good for me. It was a, these are humbling things. And God's agenda is better than my agenda. My agenda was I was taking all my vitamins and doing all my health stuff, and I should have never have encountered shingles because my autoimmune system was going to be so strong. That was my agenda. God's agenda was something entirely different, and it was a better agenda. Are your prayers laced with arrogance that you even know what's best for you? Are your prayers laced with arrogance? God, how could you do this to me? The text accuses believers uh, to whom James is writing of praying for things that are nothing more than lusts. They are praying for things so that they consume them on their desires, their lusts. They could be praying for things that are sinful. I mean, just overtly sinful. Or they could be praying for things that are born out of motives that are not eternal motives. They're temporal motives. They're, they're motives to have a comfortable life. And there's no link to eternity. Do you ever praise God for unanswered prayer? When He gives you a clear no? There are times... When I don't get my prayer answered and I get this wry smile on my face and I say, thank you, God, because I think had you answered my prayer, it probably wouldn't have been the best thing for me. Because I know me. And, and you need to mold and shape things around me to keep me in my place. God gives his gifts and they can be enjoyable gifts. When God gives gifts to us, they are enjoyable but when the object of your prayer is just your enjoyment, that's an empty, hollow prayer. Why do you want the enjoyment of this answered prayer? What if you were to link your prayer request to God's glory? God, I am asking you, and I know, God, I've asked you repeatedly to help me in this area, but here is why I am asking you for this, for your glory. Or God, here's why I'm asking you this for the discipleship of my brothers in Christ. Love one another. I mean, this is a major charge in your life. Love one another. Or God, here's why I'm asking you for this so that the unsaved can be reached with the gospel. So all of a sudden, if we've got these go-to prayer requests, how do those go-to prayer requests link to the glory of God, to the discipleship of our brothers, the benefit of the love of others, the evangelism of the lost? These will be prayer requests that have legs. They are likely to get answered because they are not centered on our lusts and our desires. Proverbs 10 says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Are your desires righteous? 
that they can be granted? Are you righteous in desiring the things that you desire? Or are your desires and your prayer requests the same things that a wicked man of the world or a wicked woman of the world would be praying for? Is there anything unique about your desires that you present to God that are different from an unsaved person? Good thing to consider. At the core of this evil is a preference for the world that cannot coexist with a love of God. Love of the world and love of God are antithetical to each other. They're enemies. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, James gets our attention here. He's been saying, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Now, he says, adulterers. It's like, okay, a little change of title there that you're addressing me with, James. Um, change of tone. This is a traditional accusation that you hear uh, from the Jewish prophets, adulterers. What is interesting about this accusation, this title, adulterers, is it was always applied to God's people, to Israel, to people of the covenant, the people who would consider themselves religious people on God's team, and God calls them adulterers. Friendship with the world is harlotry. It's adultery. It is cheating on your husband. And the warning is this. You and I may, be, uh, may have so justified our worldliness so as to convince ourselves that our worldliness is not worldly at all. We are religious people. We are making religious prayer requests. Could it be possible that the average American evangelical lifestyle is an adulterous lifestyle? That the average evangelical Christian is just living a worldly life? Mine certainly could be in many respects. This text calls us to re-examine some things. Do we have a friendship with the world? Do we have an affinity for the things of this life in this world? We have no indication in this text that, God, that uh, James's readers were conscientiously trying to reject God. The fact that they were at enmity with God seems to be a reality with which they were unaware. Living loveless lives toward their brethren, loveless lives toward the poor, clamoring to be leaders, maybe a political agenda behind it all. They're not worshiping idols. They're not worshiping Baals. They're just in love with things of the world. They have worldly passions, according to verse 3. They love the world, according to verse 4. They have unfulfilled desires, according to verse 2, that are not God's desires. And God tolerates no rival desires. Your desire is to be for Him. He wants your heart. He wants your devotion to be toward Him. So today's text teaches us that quarrels and fights among Christians arise out of unfulfilled desires that are, at their core, worldly desires. They're empty of any glory for God. My advice coming from this text would be that you would pray and that you would link the content of your prayers to the glory of God. 
to the discipleship of your brothers, to the evangelism of the lost, and I would add this, to your eternal perspective looking back on it. Uh, God, as you carry me through this disease, as you carry me through this financial trial, as you carry me through this interpersonal trial, I pray that you would help me to behave and receive it in such a way that when I'm in eternity in your presence looking back on how I behave myself, how I walked with you, that I would praise you for that. I recognize now that your answer might not be something I would really want right now, but I'm asking when I look back on it from eternity that you would cause it to be something I would just say, thank you, God. Thank you for allowing that. Thank you for allowing me to walk with you through that. And thank you for carrying me through that. So link your prayer request to an eternal perspective. And so a little different conclusion here today. You've got your handouts. I want you to just write down one and two, your most frequent items of prayer. What are the two things you always pray for when you pray to God in your life? And I'm talking about your personal life, things you pray for yourself. And if you're a little bit embarrassed to admit it, you can write a little code word or a little abbreviation. If you're like, I don't want people next to me seeing what I pray for. (laughs) It's too personal. I get it. Just write a little code word. You can even write the thing. (laughs) What are the two things you pray for the most? Give you about 20 more seconds. Shouldn't have a a lot of thought in this. When you go to prayer, you can even go to prayer now. What's the first thing you're going to ask for? The next thing I want you to list, and here you might really want to abbreviate, the two biggest disappointments in your life in terms of what you desire in life, the two biggest disappointments, unfulfilled desires. I actually did this, and no, you can't read it. But I got my notes. Here, I got my notes right there. You can see all the chicken scratch on my notes, all right? So I did this too. What are your two most disappointing, unfulfilled desires in life? And here's where it gets hard. I want you to treat all four of these items on your list as prayer requests to God. And I want you to link them to God's glory. How can he be glorified in this prayer request? I want you to link them to his glory or to the discipleship of saints or the evangelism of the lost or how you're going to look back on this from eternity's vantage point. So just link these four things to the glory of God. I'm going to give you like two minutes for this. hope you're good with silence.
In a moment, we're going to have a moment of silent prayer, and uh, perhaps you could pray through these requests that you have. And um, again, I would just encourage you, if, if you have requests on there and you're linking them to the glory of God, to the benefit of saints, to the evangelism of the lost, and to your journey, looking back on it from an eternal vantage point, I think that that will serve you well. Let's bow forward to prayer. And uh, as we do, I'm going to give you a minute or two to pray silently through these requests that you have put down on your paper, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is entirely possible that we are living lives that are in enmity with you. That, Father, we love ourselves and we love our lives and our comforts and things of this world uh, more than we love and regard you. Uh, Father, it's entirely possible that the majority of our efforts, the majority of our thoughts, the majority of our affinities are temporary matters. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would reveal this to us to the degree that this is true. And I think it's true in all of our hearts to some degree. God, I think there's room for sanctification in every one of us today. I pray that you would help us, God, to have a rich prayer life, that, Lord, we would ask you for the things that bother us. We would ask you about the desires of our heart, but, God, that we would not have an arrogance that believes we know what is best. Father, I pray that we would be your children, that we would recognize that you are a father to us, that you do direct, and you always direct in the way that is best for us. Father, you know that we are weak creatures, and you know that we need strength. You know that we are shallow, and we need perspective. I pray, Lord, that we would have the perspective of your word on our trials and on our lives. I pray, God, that you would give us eternal focus, that we would transport ourselves mentally into that eternal state where we are going to one day be looking back on all of this. And God, I pray that you would help us to be very concerned that we could look back on this time with joy, that we could look back on these desires and how you worked to fulfill them or to change them with joy. God, be honored among your people. Uh, Lord, we're going to ask you a question about building an addition to the church. And Father, we want to be reminded that a church is more than a building. And that, Father, buildings are tools. They are not signs of success. They are not signs of achievement. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be pragmatic, to have your heart and your mind on the decision that is before us. And God, might you lead your people in a loving fashion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.